Psalm 8 is a beautiful expression of creation and the creator and leaves me with this question. Who does this planet belong to? Several years ago, my husband Bill and I started reading a wide variety of books aloud each night. Well, let's be honest. He reads out loud, and I try to stay awake. One recent book we read was called Cod, a biography of the fish that changed the world. There were actually many interesting facts about the world of cod fishing, but there was one thing that particularly struck me. Did you know that until 1945, no one had ownership of the ocean? Only at that time did countries begin to lay claim to the continental shelves the first 200 miles off their coasts. This water is ours, they shouted. And it got me thinking, but really, who owns the ocean? Our psalm today helps us answer that question. We read of the majesty of God's name in all the earth, his glory beyond measure in all the earth. It's above the heavens. And then it says, it's your, God's glory, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, you have made. God's stamp of creative ownership is all over this planet and beyond. He made it. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And if we stop here to reflect for a moment, how does that impact our view of the world? How does the Lord's ownership of this planet affect our care for it? And in light of who owns this world, what is our role here? Verses 6 to 8 say, You made them, humans, rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, and all that swim the paths of the seas. Our big idea for today is that when we acknowledge that the earth is the Lord's and humbly respond with awe and wonder, we naturally want to care for it more intentionally. As Marco Costumo writes, simply put, the earth is the Lord's, and we are his caretakers or stewards. So our activity in caring for the planet and stewarding all that he has made is not driven by guilt. Rather, it's out of obedience and a posture of gratitude that we take care of what he has made. To live lightly, to steward creation well, is just a normal part of Christian discipleship. It's not some sort of fringe activity or fad. In Genesis 2.15, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The word work here in Hebrew is abad, which can also translate to cultivate, create, or make. And take care of is the Hebrew word shamar, which means tend, nurture, or guard. Genesis gives us a picture of God's desire that we as humans be in right relationship, not just with him, but also with ourselves, with others, and creation. God designed us for relationship with our physical surroundings, with everything he created. Sadly, we know that those original relationships were broken, and all creation groans because of that. We see evidence of our broken relationship with creation, and its effects everywhere. 
But let's take a look at Hosea 4, 1 to 3, to see that this is not unique to our point in history. Hosea declared, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. You know, although this was written thousands of years ago, it feels like it could be the top stories on my Google feed. Hosea is connecting human sin with the death of fish and the land mourning and all who live in it wasting away. This takes me back to the cod book I referred to earlier. The cod stocks were decimated when people thought the ocean and all its contents belonged to them. A combination of greed, technology, and ignoring information about the fish stocks declining numbers led to near extinction. Even after 30 years of no commercial cod fishing, only one of several stocks has even begun to show signs of replenishing. Creation suffering and human suffering are intrinsically linked to our broken relationship with God. The Bible doesn't distinguish between the spiritual parts and the earthly parts. Holiness isn't just about praying, witnessing, and giving. It involves our whole lives, from meals to ethics to relationships, everything. So how do we approach caring for the earth from a spiritual perspective? We are not being called to merely do our best and hang in there with a broken creation until we get to heaven. No, God is actively at work redeeming his fallen creation through Christ, and we are given the privilege of being involved. God is passionate about establishing his kingdom on earth, and as his image bearers, we have a direct role in him accomplishing this. Colossians 1, 15-20 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Jesus is actively reconciling all things to God, not past tense, but continuing tense. Today, all things are being reconciled through Jesus. People, what we physically see, and the unseen realms too, everything. And we are the body of Christ, his church. So we are called to live as the physical manifestation of Jesus, to love others, to live in harmony with people and with creation, 
This is our calling as Christians. So what does this actually look like? You know, we can be tempted to think it's stats on melting ice caps, and I don't mean the Tim Hortons kind, or terrifying information about droughts and pollution and oceans that are filled with plastic, that that might motivate change, but that's not true. In fact, it's actually having a relationship with God and His creation that motivates us to take care of it. It's awe and wonder at our amazing world that causes lasting sustainable change, not a list of rules or do's and don'ts. So what do I mean by awe and wonder? Stephen Bauma Prediger says, We care for only what we love. We love only what we know. We truly know only what we experience. Do you agree? Do we have to experience something deeply to really care for it? I think so. The first time I was introduced to the connection between creation care and awe and wonder was several years ago when our Food for the Hungry team did a professional development day at the Brooksdale Arasha site. For those of you who aren't familiar with Arasha, it's a Christian environmental stewardship organization who do incredible conservation and education work. When we showed up at their property, I must confess that I expected something very different than what transpired. We started with a talk, not unlike this one, and then we headed out to their garden where we harvested vegetables. Then we came back to a picnic shelter. We all worked together, cleaning, preparing, and building incredible pizzas that were cooked in an outdoor oven. We sat around large tables enjoying delicious food and stimulating conversation. And I kept waiting for the hammer to fall. You should be recycling. You should bike to work. You should. But the shoulds never came. Rather, we were given a list of questions to ponder and activities to consider. Things like, can you trace the water that you drink from rain to tap? Um, can you name five native edible plants in our area? Salmon berries, cranberries, mushrooms. Mm, can you point north right now? Uh, maybe. Where does your garbage go? You know, in that moment, to the curb was the only honest answer I could give, which actually disturbed me because I know that it has to go somewhere on our planet. Where does your food come from? We can be so disconnected from our food sources that many of us haven't a clue how or where things grow, how much water is required, how much fuel is used to transport items. A 40-something friend of mine once sheepishly admitted that just that year she had learned that dill pickles began as cucumbers. In contrast, our four-and-a-half-year-old grandson and I planted tiny seeds in March and marveled as the tender shoots poked up through the soil. I saw awe and wonder on his little face when he found the seed husk on one of the leaves. This all came from that, Grandma? he asked. Eventually, the little seedlings were ready to be tra transplanted outdoors, and now we have little cukes. Too bad he doesn't have a grandma who makes dill pickles to complete the lesson. But you know, back to those questions from the Arasha time. 
They filled me with curiosity and motivation to learn more. And with each piece of learning, I came face to face with new realities. Many of you know that I work with Food for the Hungry, a Christian development organization that's committed to ending poverty one community at a time. Prior to doing this work, I failed to see so clearly how my choices here in Abbotsford were affecting, possibly even causing, people's poverty on the other side of the world. So what does natural resource depletion on the other side of the world have to do with me? The reality is, our extravagant Western lifestyle consumes far more than our fair share of resources. A team of UBC researchers developed a tool called the Ecological Footprint of Nations and determined that if the entire world consumed at the rate we do in North America, it would take five planets for us all to just survive. So I'm challenged to ask more questions. What about my own food? Now that I'm learning where my food is grown, I'm asking questions like, how is the land being cared for? How are the farmers being treated? I am constantly, directly and indirectly, using parts of creation in order to live and move and have my being. How are these bits treated in the process? When I shop, I now consider how much energy is required to make the disposable packaging. Another way to say this might be, I am constantly discarding, in one way or another, the bits of creation that I use directly. How does this disposal process affect other aspects of creation? Do I really need all the things that I buy? How could I reduce my household waste? I could go on and on, but I actually hesitate to offer this sort of list because it's all too easy to succumb to yet another form of legalism. So rather than follow rules, what if we viewed our stewardship of creation as new ways to worship? Or what if we use already familiar activities as worship, like taking time to appreciate our food. It's a gift from God, and it comes from His creation. I distinctly remember pulling a carrot from my grandma's garden as a child, wiping the dirt on my shorts and taking that first bite, the crunch, the juice, that bursting flavor, and that just little bit of dirt for good measure. There's really nothing like it. So instead of being mindless consumers, can we be grateful receivers? Instead of dashing through a park, can we thank God for the variety of trees and flowers that we see? Can we marvel together that one bee can pollinate about 5,000 flowers a day? And if you think that's amazing, consider this. To make one pound of honey, a hive of bees must travel over 55,000 miles and visit 2 million flowers. Will we take time to watch a hummingbird dart around knowing that its wings are flapping up to 200 times per second? Wow, God's creativity, God's gift to us to take care of. So let's ask questions. Let's seek answers. Let's allow ourselves to be shocked and surprised, awed and amazed at the wonders of the world around us. And let's ask God for His direction 
when the answers we discover leave us sitting in discomfort, let's be brave enough to sit in those uncomfortable places and bold enough to make changes. I think of David in our psalm today. One commentary speaks to how David likely wrote this after a late night stroll where he marveled at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Have you taken time lately to stare at a clear night sky, to watch for shooting stars? You might have to leave the light pollution of the city to enjoy them. But awe and wonder inspire care. What causes you to be in awe? I believe another way that awe and wonder and relationship are stirred is through naming. Our four-and-a-half-year-old grandson, Grayson, is a great adventurer, and invariably, as we're out on paths and trails, we encounter people and their dogs. The scenario plays out like this as we approach anyone walking their dog. Grayson initiates, Hi, what's your dog's name? To which the stranger replies, Rufus or Scout or Rocky. Then Grayson responds, Can I pet your dog? Most often the answer is yes, and if no, there's usually a lengthy apologetic rationale for why not. At this point, Grayson, our little example of hospitality, never fails to ask, what's your name? Within 30 seconds, stranger and dog are no longer them. They are Kendra and her dog Rex, the Golden Lab. We have relationships. As Leah Costamo says in her book, Planted, learning a name gives worth to the thing named. Think how unknown and undervalued you feel when someone can't remember your name. In theological terms, naming is the first step in moving from an I-it relationship with something or someone to an I-thou relationship, a relationship where a person or creature or even an object becomes known not just for its usefulness, but for its innate worth. It's the first step in the kind of understanding that leads to caring. Names lead to caring. So what does all of this require of me? Well, my time and attention. Caring for creation isn't intended to be a hobby or an afterthought. As I said earlier, it's part of our Christian discipleship. It's actually an act of worship. So what's my call for us today? Would you consider how you might live more lightly on God's planet? What are the ways we might simplify our lives? And keep in mind that a life of simplicity is a tricky balance with self-righteousness on one side and guilt on the other. Taking care of the planet is not intended to make me feel better. It will involve sacrifices confronting my own greed and entitlement, asking difficult questions, and listening to challenging answers. But most importantly, let's ask God to transform our hearts and desires so that they reflect His heart and His desires. I believe that God has naturally hardwired some of us to live with awe and wonder daily. For others, like me, A posture of awe and wonder has been an intentional choice, a slowing down of my pace, making time and space not just to appreciate the magnificent wall of Jim Woody's rhododendrons, but to look into the center of each flower within those flowers. 
awe and wonder grows was sitting by a lake with my family, observing the variety of birds, naming eagles, loons, swallows, robins, and goldfinch, and gasping in amazement when an osprey descends from hundreds of feet, splashes through the water's surface, and carries on with a rainbow trout in its talons. Wow. So will you take time today to marvel with me at the creativity of God, to consider the heavens, the moon, and the stars, to be humbled by the privilege we have of occupying God's planet, to ask yourself, what can I do today as an act of worship to actively take up my role as a steward of creation? <laughs>